We're continuing right now a two-week sermon series, although as I said last week, Tammy Swanson-Drayheim, who came and preached a couple weeks ago, really started it without even knowing it. She was talking about grace, and it was just perfect, the perfect introduction. So I consider her to have started all of this. Um, we're talking about grace, the sacraments, uh, and children. We're bringing that element in there, but really we're bringing in, in the what we give to the next generation, but also what they might give to us. I hope that sits in our mind. Because you could probably think to yourself uh, of people right now. You, you could do a tally in your mind and do two columns and think of yourself all the sermons that have ever influenced you in life by name. And of course, that's a dangerous thing for me to stand here and say, right? You could probably not name a lot of them. They've probably influenced you more than you realize. But then you could do in another column all the people that have influenced you and taught you the faith, whether it was caught or taught by them. And you could probably make a long list in some cases. And that's part of what our job is as we, learn, as we live grace together, is to be teachers, especially to the next generation, but also to one another of this grace. I'll just make a comment as we start this. I had the, uh, the honor, I was asked to do uh, the funeral this weekend of Stephanie's grandfather, um, and, and honored to do that, a man who exemplified, I think, hospitality and love in so many ways and grace, and we were able to speak to that. But what's really cool is now we're talking here this morning, we're going to talk about communion particularly, and the grace that's evidenced in that, and we get to see this visible representation as we take communion, which we won't do today, but when we take communion, we gather together of grace lived out within us. But now here, I got to testify to somebody who's gone ahead, and now I'm going to guess is awed beyond belief, standing in glory with God. We only get a little taste of it now, but we better get a taste of it as God's people. We will be awed beyond belief when we stand in glory, but we can still get a glimpse of that and that grace that God gives us. So we're making three connections this morning. We're making a connection with grace. We're making a connection with the sacraments, particularly communion. And we were, we were bringing in the issue of children. And this all came from uh, conversations that we've had within our worship and music ministry about how to do a better job of including children in worship. As you saw, I just dismissed the children to children's worship, but it's a good thing that we're able to have them in here for half of the worship service, isn't it? They can experience what it is to sing praise to God, to glorify God through music, to, to hear the scripture, to pray, to even watch something like the offering, which is part of worship, that these are all a part of what normal Christians do to glorify and praise God. We just showed them that. You were all teachers. And then we set them off, and now they learn in an age-appropriate way more about worship. They're not just playing downstairs. They're learning about God and what it means to glorify God and to worship God. And one of the things that, or two of the things that we've talked about in worship and music uh, are bringing into worship, one is to include and allow kids to, to be included even in the beginning songs of worship to give them banners to, to move with. Because if you think about the, the transition that we sometimes put kids through in life, when Jesus says, you know, let the little children come to me, um, he didn't say then put them in a worship service and make them be quiet the whole time and not make it unmeaningful to them for eight or 12 years. And when they're eight or nine or 10, then they got to figure out how to incorporate themselves into the worship service. But we didn't show them much along the way. We didn't include them up until that point in any meaningful way other than showing them. No, we need to show them from the beginning. You're a participant in this. You're with us. 
and what can be meaningful to you might be different, but we got to bring you in where we can. We want to encourage movement, and I will tell you this. If you're going to be mildly annoyed by a child dancing even in the aisle a little bit with a banner, you'll get over it because we're teaching the next generation, and it might actually be the difference between them coming to know Jesus Christ and not. I'll buy a banner for that. Amen? The other thing that we're talking about including are grapes when we serve communion, the raw material, so that a kid can come up with a family with their parents and not participate in communion directly. We can begin to anticipate in them the day when they do. They can take, take the grape and say, taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll say something like that. And they can participate, but they're not fully ready for the meal yet. But we anticipate the day when they are. And we're thinking about that day as we train them and teach them to have a meaningful part in worship from the beginning. Those are the things we're thinking about in worship and music. But we also asked, what effect would the inclusion of children in a deeper way have on us? You know, we might be teachers to them, but they are teachers to us. I think it helps us recognize uh, and, and have perspective on God's grace when we, when we see it in children and see that we're trying to communicate this to children, we can actually learn in the process from that. And it gives us life. I think having kids move around during worship, you might move yourself. You might feel a little more free in worship because kids are moving as well. It gives us life. And so we're, we'll get there. Whether you know Jesus Christ or not, your job in life is to receive the grace that God freely gives. God's giving it. Our job is to recognize it. And so we talked about two different types of grace last week, and this is one of those rare occasions where I'm going to tell you, I'm going to recap them super quickly. If you want more detail, go and listen to last week's sermon. It's on the website. I don't say that very often. If you want a little more, that's the best way to get it, because I don't want to rehash it all. But I want to just remind us. We talked about common grace. This is that grace that God gives us. The very fact that you have air in your lungs right now is common grace. You didn't choose it. You didn't create it. God did. God created us. God created the world. God gives us that ability to even have life. That's common grace. It's common to everybody, whether we recognize it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we ever say thank you to God or not. But we made the distinction very importantly, and God continues to sustain this world. God is active and involved in the world we live in. And we made the distinction last week, and we have to continue to make it, that common grace doesn't save anybody. It simply gives you life. You have existence because God gives it to you. But it gives you the option, because you have life, to then choose what God gives us. That's saving grace. So that's the other kind of grace we talked about, efficacious. Big word, you can use it at lunch if you want. But it's saving grace is all it is. That God gives us uh, this grace that redeems us, that frees us from the power of sin and evil. So even though we can have life, we aren't saved by that. Now we're drawn into God's presence when we receive the grace that affects something in us, that transforms us into the very image of Christ when we say yes to what God is giving us through Jesus Christ. But now I want to add one more word to the, to the little world of grace that we're talking about, which would be prevenient grace, really more of an effect or, or a, a sense about grace, if you will, that God's action of grace through Jesus Christ precedes your decision or mine of acceptance. 
it was there before you even knew it. So we gave a little example of something like this uh, last week, uh, but I'll use a different example this week to kind of give an idea here. Um, I know somebody in a previous church, uh, a couple who, uh, they received an unexpected surprise of money at one point, um, and a fairly good amount of money. It wasn't going to make them rich, but it was, you know, a pretty nice deal. Um, and what happened was, if you go back to, and here we get into history for a moment, go back to the 1864 uh, bill that uh, President Lincoln signed in for free land, if you know anything about this. You can go to the Homestead National Monument down south if you're in, and see all about it, the great displays. The Homestead Act, people could go get 80 acres or 160 acres of land free if you could just basically master the land. Go stake your claim, make it profitable or productive in five years, it was yours. Well, now you can still see the evidence of that years and years and years later. Uh, people have parcels of land in those amounts still. Um, anyways, so one of these family members did that back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, staked their claim. They worked the land in a fairly unproductive part of land for a long time, but then it went fallow, basically, and, and they didn't have any real close heirs. And they just said, you know, basically, once the, once the line ends, I want the land divided up and the shares go to whoever. Well, it turns out that that happened a few years ago on this fairly unproductive, useless piece of land. Also, though, oil was discovered. And so all of a sudden, all the, all the people in, that were left this land who thought it was really worthless got money. A whole bunch of money came their way. That's money they didn't know that was there. They didn't know that oil was there. It preceded anything that happened, basically. That's what we're saying by prevenient. But if you add something like children to the mix, let's say there are children who are also going to get this inheritance. They can't do anything with the money necessarily at this point, but one day they'll be able to have the option to do something with that. So God gives us this saving grace that precedes any decision that we have. Generation to generation, we need to tell the next generation about this grace. But God did the work well before you or I existed. And it's offered to us as God's grace that effects a change in us if we say yes to it. Long explanation for all of that. One area where I think we see that demonstrated very well in the covenant, we baptize infants and believers. I think we see prevenient grace very clearly in infant baptism, where we've said we're going to take you into the community and recognize God's grace is active even before you can recognize it. And we're going to raise you in the faith so that you can make the decision yourself. We're recognizing prevenient grace in that instance. But we're looking at communion today specifically, um, and I want to begin to move ourselves that direction by looking at the vine, what Jesus says in John 15, 1 through 4. So let's turn there, and let's just point out, before we read it, Jesus makes something out of you and me. That's what happens. Jesus makes something out of you and me, otherwise we would have been individuals, all of a sudden he gathers us together. And so, John 15, 1 through 4, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You see, Jesus makes something out of us who would otherwise have been individuals. He says, now you're part of the vine if you've said yes to my grace. The vine in the Old Testament understanding was clearly used over and over to represent Israel. 
If you read through the Old Testament and look for vine, you're going to see it represented Israel. But commentator John Barclay notes that uh, every time you see the vine used in the Old Testament, it marks, he says, a degeneration in Israel. Things weren't going up, they were going down, morally and otherwise, in Israel, whenever you see the vine image. But that would have been known in the day of Jesus. The vine represents Israel, so Jesus comes in and makes a very bold statement, doesn't he? I'm the true vine, he says. And with Jesus, there's no degeneration. It gets better if you're attached to the vine. And we can translate this. Commentators point this out. This doesn't, it's not exclusive to Israel and its understanding at this point. You can bring this to, to what the, this does to the individual and then what it means for the church at this point. It's not simply looking at Israel. If you look at it, the upsides of this are uh, in the vine, there's going to be pruning. The Father prunes so that we should recognize that if we have faith in Jesus Christ and we're following Jesus, that's not a pain-free existence. Pruning might hurt, but you're going to be better for it. Assisting better. And in fact, because you're bearing fruit, you're going to be a blessing. The good news is going to emanate from you because you're attached to the true vine, and that will bless others. The downside, of course, is that if you're not bearing fruit, but you're still somehow attached to the vine, you're cut off. And the law said you couldn't use the stuff that's cut off in the temple. You really couldn't use it anywhere. It's not really useful for much except the burn pile. We had this kind of instance uh, when we were living in Colorado where wood dries out fast and fences fall over all the time. We lost an entire chunk of fence. and We had to get rid of this useless wood. We talked to a friend who said, hey, take it down to my dad's hobby farm. He loves to burn stuff. So we took it down there to Pueblo in a hobby farm and had fun in the desert, and he burned the fence. That's all it's good for. You couldn't build a house. You couldn't do anything with it, not even a playhouse, respectively, out of the stuff. So, too, with this stuff. It gets cut off. It's going to be uh, removed because it's not producing anything, and it's not good for anything anymore. I'm the true vine, Jesus says. I'm going to make something out of you individuals to make you into a people. We see that as the church. And stick with me. You're going to bear fruit. You're going to be a blessing to the world. They're going to see the good news in you. Jesus makes something out of us. And we, we see that visibly represented in communion. That something is made out of us from individuals to a people. When I was a graduate student living in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, Canadian Thanksgiving, which just happened, by the way, uh, was coming up, and they do the same things just a month earlier, basically, than we do. So that meant for American Thanksgiving, everything was on sale, uh, by the way, which was very nice for us. But uh, one of the professors was talking, and he's talking to this class of a lot of Canadians, but not all, and he says, you know, I know a lot of you are going to go home to, to celebrate Thanksgiving with your families, and I know how you're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. You're going to sit in rows, and you're going to pass around little squares of bread and tiny little cups, and you're all going to say a prayer together, and that's how you're going to celebrate it. And of course, we sit here and we say, of course, nobody celebrates Thanksgiving that way. And everybody in the class was saying, nobody celebrates Thanksgiving that way. We're going to sit around a table with a lot of food, right? That's how you celebrate Thanksgiving. Well, the early church, when they celebrated communion together, it was an agape meal, a love feast. They ate a whole meal in somebody's home because there weren't churches. They had to meet in somebody's home. 
That was the church. They ate a whole meal together, breaking the bread together. That's how they did it in the early church. And you see this portrait, this picture in the early church of exactly what Paul talks about in Galatians. In Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Because in those churches you had people sitting at table together, Jew and Greek, who never would have sat next to each other or eaten together, ever. All of a sudden, Jesus makes something out of us. Together, unity, bringing them together. Men and women both led within the church. And then you see that uh, even um, the, the idea of slave and free, slave and master. Master might serve slave. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It's fascinating that even today, even when we have a lot of unity within this body of believers and other bodies around Lincoln and other churches, we still have a lot of people who are in the room who otherwise wouldn't hang out except for Jesus Christ. Do you ever think about that? I like you people. You like me. I know that. But we not, not all of us would hang out necessarily because there are a lot of things we don't have in common, but we're all part of the vine. We're all part of the vine, and that matters. And worldwide, historically speaking, throughout church history, what is one of the major things we've shared with everybody, everywhere, through all time, but the Lord's Supper? It's one of those things that, that Jesus commanded, and it shows we're all part of the vine. We're in this same thing together. So we're all part of that vine. And it's God's grace that forms God's people. That's what forms us. And we see that in communion. We celebrate that in communion. I want to talk about the, the three names that are typically used for being at the Lord's table. And I want to, I want to present them as what they say about sort of our approach to the Lord's table and something they might ask of us as we consider that. And then I'll round it out. So let's talk first about communion. I use this one a lot, typically, when I refer to being at the Lord's table. Communion suggests that we are together at the Lord's table. And you can look at Acts 2.42. It'll be up on the screen. It's the church in Jerusalem as they met together, and it says they, so this church in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That word fellowship, by the way, is koinonia, which means fellowship, good translation there, or participation. But what's fascinating to me about it, I looked it up this week a little bit more, and, and really the origin of the word in Greek means common or, in fact, unclean. It's interesting to think about the fact that Jesus makes this fellowship and gathers together that which would otherwise be unholy, not set apart for his purposes, and he says, now I set you apart for my purposes. Now because you're in me, I make you holy, you who otherwise would be unholy. I make you a people, and we see that as the fellowship, and then we break bread together, signifying that very same thing. The sacraments, baptism, and communion are together activities. They're not activities we do apart from the body of believers. We only do them together. That's why that name actually is so significant to say communion. We're communing together, not just with God, but with one another in that meal. They're shaping activities in that they form us. They, they keep before us the fact that we are a part of the same vine. 
we do have an essential unity, and we're reminded of that every time we take the meal together. And they show grace to us, and they ask us to join in that grace. It's that prevenient thing. This meal came way before you or I came on the scene. And it shows that God offered that grace for a long time before we recognized it. And we participate in that together. We accept what God offers to us. And there's a part that we have to play in that. This is why I think the grapes are significant for children. When you think about the materials used for both the sacraments, let's just focus on communion for a moment. Uh, they are some kind of wheat, right? Something that would form bread. And a fruit of the vine, grapes. But they don't just make themselves into the final elements. They're things given by God. They're bounty that's provided by God because God created. Yet they require human initiative and human work to form the final result. We participate with something that God has already given to us. Which is why I think the grapes are powerful, because we're participating in that sense too, because we're saying to, to little children, look, one day God's going to form in you this same faith. Taste and see the Lord is good. We participate and we accept a grace that God has already given. We participate and say we're part of this vine together. And that's what binds us together. So we're together at the Lord's table. The question I think this asks of us is, are we united with Christ when we come to the table? Or are we just individuals taking bread squares and eating them? Are we united? Is this a meal that brings us together? The second term we can look at, besides communion, where we're together at the Lord's table, is Eucharist. We don't use this in our tradition very often, but we should. Uh, Eucharist is simply a Greek word that means thanks or thanksgiving. We are, it talks about our attitude. We're thankful at the Lord's table. When you read the famous communion passage from 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had Eucharistatis, given thanks, Eucharist. When he had given thanks, then he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He gave thanks. In Jewish context, you give thanks at multiple times, but three of the primary times you give thanks are when there's food, you give thanks for that. When there's drink, you give thanks for that. When there's good news, you give thanks for that. Three out of three right here, huh? Food, drink, and good news. That's our attitude when we come to the Lord's table. God, I am thankful for the work that you have done in me through Jesus Christ, for the grace that you have given that I now receive, that you didn't have to give, but you chose. We're thankful. The question I think it asks of us as we come to the Lord's table, because people come with all sorts of different uh, emotional states and attitudes, uh, they come to the Lord's table with tears, perfectly appropriate, with a smile of joy, perfectly appropriate. One danger, though, is to walk up to the Lord's table with total confusion. At least we need to have thanksgiving in our heart for what we're receiving. 
if there's a lot of stuff going in life that we need to hand over to God, what's going on in our lives? And we come to the Lord's table with that, and it asks of us this, are we truly transformed by Christ? Are we even in that process with Christ? Are we genuinely thankful, basically, for what God is doing through us, through Jesus Christ? The third name that's often applied to the Lord's table is that it's the Lord's Supper. So if we have uh, that it's communion, we're together. That talks a lot about our unity as the body of believers. Eucharist, our attitude, we are thankful as we come to the Lord's table. The third reminds us that it isn't our table in the first place. We are invited. Thanks be to God that we have a seeking God who wants you and me to be in relationship, and he invites us to the table we don't deserve to be at. He says, I call you friends if we accept his grace. Through Jesus, you see, God invites us to, a, to become a people, to recognize that there is much to be thankful for, and to recognize that we've been given a place we didn't deserve. But God opens that up to us. That's grace at the table. Grace is served at the Lord's table. Jesus doesn't just say grace. He serves grace at his table. And the question it asks of us is, are we living by God's power? Or am I simply tossing back the juice from the drink and living my own way? Am I living by the power of the living, spirit of the living God or not? Because I'm invited to the table. I've had a number of really great moments in my three years here, but the two moments that still stand out to me serving as pastor here, one is my first visit with Ruth Reichel. If anybody hasn't visited her recently, go. It's always a delight. My first visit with her. It was, God spoke right after that, and it was, it was an amazing moment. But the second was the first uh, Good Friday service that we did, and I'm not usually one who's you know, pulled in by those that much, they're, they don't speak as much to me as they do, I think, to some, but, but man, it was a good service. It was a Good Friday, Monday, Thursday service. Jacob, the interim, you know, that we all love, had, come, had found this service, and we just kept it for a couple years because it was such a great service. Told the whole story, Thursday and Friday, in one night, culminating in communion. And that communion was just such a rich time to serve you all that came as you walked up and to say by name, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And we do this every month, but for some reason that one stands out as so rich and so personal. It's a joy to be able to do that every month, to say your name, forgive me when I blank on it, by the way, which occasionally happens, it's not because I don't love you, but I say your name. Somebody else says your name, this is the body of Christ broken for you blood of Christ broken or shed for you. That's grace being served up in such a powerful and personal way by the God of the universe for you and me. It's a rich privilege to be able to do that and serve in that way. Let me round this out with two thoughts, bringing in kids and bringing in all of us talking about serving grapes for kids. 
And part of the question that that asks of us is, will we do our best, not just the grapes, but will we do our best to continue uh, to include our children in worship in age-appropriate ways? We never want to ask them to go beyond. and We never want to misuse uh, what we've been commanded to do. By the way, communion is the one thing we're commanded to do by Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus didn't command us to preach, although there's great theological grounding for that. We can talk about it later if you want. Jesus didn't command us to lead worship using choir, guitar, organ, handbells, or piano. He said, do this and remember to me. What are we teaching our children in worship? What are we doing to teach them in age-appropriate ways so that they have a meaningful faith from beginning to end, so they grow up to be adults who can worship the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify his name like it's a natural inclination, like it's something they grew up to do. That's part of what we're being asked right now. Will we continue to teach our children the meaning of what we're doing together as the body of Christ? But also, are we willing to commit ourselves to learn from them about God's grace? What they can teach us when you get down at eye level with a kid when you watch them take a grape, when you ask them what they heard in worship and what spoke to them, they'll tell you. We have to learn from them as well. And I'll point this out, worship and music, myself as well, I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on this plan. Positive, or if you have reservations about it, always speak in grace and truth. But we need to share the positives and the negatives we see in this kind of thing. But the second thing uh, is a question beyond kids, and, and it's us building one another up and sharing as people who are all connected in the vine. In the years I've been here and even before, it's been kind of difficult to find communion servers, interestingly. It's the one thing Jesus commanded. It's hard to find communion servers. It's very interesting to me. And I think it's a high calling but folks, we've been invited to the table. It's not too high a calling for us. Jesus invited us to bless our fellow brothers and sisters by saying by name, this is the body, this is the blood for you. So we need more people on the list. We need all of us to rise up to that. If you call Jesus Lord and Savior and you call this your church home and you're physically able to do it, let's do it. Let's bless one another in this way. The blessing of serving one another by name, drink, and the good news. Let's pray together. God, it is a blessing to be in your presence, and we pray that that blessing would extend within this room, that we would find ourselves attached to the vine, nourished by your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would be a blessing to those around us because of that. And even in the days when it feels like we're being pruned a bit too much, we would recognize that you're with us. No matter what's happening around us, the hope that we have in you is greater than the circumstances that we're going through. God, help us see the richness of your grace as we gather together week in and week out. Help us understand the richness of your grace in the meal and the table that you invited us to share in. Help us witness the depths of your grace and the extent of your grace in the eyes of our children who show us what love is like, what it means to accept those around them in love. 
God, help us be teachers and learners of your grace. Help us receive your grace, knowing that you gave it at great cost. God, we give ourselves to you today. Amen.